Well, hello, Grace Family Church. My name is Hal Mayer. I'm the campus pastor of the Temple Terrace Campus. I'd like to welcome you all here, all of you that are watching online. Of course, our six campuses. We've got our Lutz Campus, our Ebor Campus, our Carrollwood Campus, our South Tampa Campus, our Orlando Lakes Campus, and of course, my home campus, the Temple Terrace Campus. And so... I'm excited. I'm excited today just to get to continue in this series called True North. And I just want to be honest with you, starting off, I think when people are asked, do you search for truth? I think the average person would say, absolutely, I search for truth. But I think many times we don't search for it in, a, in the right way. And here, here's what I mean by that. I've heard people say these things. I've heard them say, one, I don't believe that. But then I've also heard this, I don't want to believe that. And I think sometimes we have to look at ourselves and wondering, am, am I really looking for truth or is it I just don't want to believe it? Because we've all been there before, right? You ever had an argument with your parents? Were you searching for truth? <laughs> or are you just wanting to do what you wanted to do? I mean, why is it when we have an argument with our spouse and they're right, we don't admit it? Why is it that I can go through another 30 minutes of arguing just because I want to win? I remember one time we were driving, my wife and I, and I was going down the road and she says, hey, you're supposed to turn there. I said, no, I'm not. And about a half mile down the road, I realized she was right. But I didn't tell her. I didn't turn around. I took three more left-hand turns and said I took a back way just so I could be right. Why is it that we do that? Well, why do we do this? And I think we've all been in situations where we don't want the truth to be real because we don't want to deal with what it means in our lives. And I think so many times when it comes, especially to the Bible, the reason we don't want to believe in the truth in the Bible is because we don't want to be held accountable for what it says. Blaise Pascal, who's a philosopher, said it this way. He says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. I mean, think about it. Just the things in your life where you've changed your ideas on it as you've gotten older. I mean, when I was a little kid, when I first found out my parents had the talk with me and I found out about sex, and I found out that you're not supposed to have it till you got married. I was like, that's fine with me. I was like, there's no problem there. I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, I'm like, my parents must have really, really wanted me to go through that act, heinous act, multiple times just to have kids. But then what happens? You get older, right? You go through high school, you go through college, and you start to go, well, I don't think that that was right. I don't think God meant we shouldn't have sex before marriage. Because back then, you know, they had arranged marriages. Now we date. I don't think God would want that. And then you go forward and you have kids, and it changes again, right? Especially if you have a daughter, you're like, yeah, no sex before marriage, right? Whatever happened to those chastity belts, <laughs> right? right? We're, we're, we change on those things. Or maybe it's this. It's that day you got married and you stood in front of the person you were going to marry and the pastor said, till death do you part. And you're like, of course, because you're so easy to love. <laughs> then five years later, you're having an argument and you're like, why are you so hard to love? Right? And, and we're saying things like this. I hear people say this all the time. Well, I'm, I'm sad and I'm unhappy. I don't think God would want me to be in an unhappy marriage. I'm like, where in here did you see that? Where did God ever say, hey, don't do the right thing if it makes you unhappy? Right, or maybe it's just this. It's the times where other people, you, you've offended them and you want them to forgive you. So you're bringing up all the passages about forgiveness. And you said, hey, it even says in the Bible that if you don't forgive me, God won't forgive you. But then all of a sudden, when you need to forgive others, you go, you don't understand what they did. Why is it that our truth changes many times based on what we want to believe. 
See, Thomas Nagel, who is an atheist who wrote many books on atheism, had a moment of just truth and honesty when he wrote this in his book, The Last Word. He said this, he says, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And I think that's what happens with so many people. It's not that we don't believe the Bible. We don't want to believe the Bible. I mean, in youth ministry, I was in youth ministry for 13 years, was in college and young adult ministry for another four years. And what I saw time and time again was students going off to college. And all of a sudden they have professors telling them why religion is dumb, why Christianity is dumb. But not only that, they see a lifestyle that they want to live that goes against the way they were brought up. And so they hear those things. They Google why I don't need to be a Christian. They go home to their parents and they say, mom and dad, I'm not a Christian anymore because of these things. And their parents don't know the answers to the question, but instead of looking for it, they just say, hey, we just don't believe that here. You just need to believe. And and they're sent down over a road believing that if you wanna believe in God, it means you have to shut off your brain. See, I I believe with Richard Dawkins, an atheist who wrote in The God Delusion, I believe him when he says this, he says, one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. And that's the problem that I see so many times is I see people coming to church with questions, with doubt, and instead of the church helping them answer the questions, digging into the resources they have, they say, hey, you shouldn't think that way. If you have doubt, that means you're not a real Christian. And that's a problem. That's a problem. We should be allowed to have questions. And here's why I believe doubt can be bad because doubt can be bad if it causes you to sit in one place. But doubt can be incredibly good if it causes you to seek truth. Hear me on this. If your doubt causes you to seek truth, then this is the way we should look at doubt. Doubt is not an absence of belief, but the beginning of understanding. It's not the absence of the belief, but it's the beginning of understanding. Actually, this is a biblical mindset. In Matthew 7, this is Jesus saying, he says, keep on asking, you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. See, if we're looking at the Bible, if we're looking at the veracity of Scripture, if we're trying to figure out whether or not this is true, God says, if you seek, you will find the truth. And today that's what we're talking about. Can we trust the Bible? And last week, Pastor Craig said, hey, next week we're going to show you overwhelming evidence for the Bible, which I was like, thanks a lot, Pastor Craig. (laughs) Which is funny because I have about 30 minutes up here. If you go to basically the first manual, the first textbook, as you would say, on apologetics, which would be Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, that shows all kinds of evidence. It's 42 hours long on Audible. I've got 30 minutes. So here's why I'm saying that. What I'm sharing today is just a fraction of the evidence we have. It's just some of the evidence we have. It is compelling, absolutely, but I want you to understand there's so much more. So here's the question we ask, though. Why, why is the Bible so special? What is it that makes it so special? Why is it such a big topic on whether or not it's true or not? Well, Josh McDowell in Evidence That Demands a Verdict wrote this. He said, the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by more than 40 different human authors. These authors came from a variety of backgrounds, including Joshua, who was a military general, Daniel was a prime minister, Peter, a fisherman, and Nehemiah, a cupbearer. The authors of these various books wrote in different places, such as the wilderness, which was Moses, prison, which was Paul, and exile in the Isle of Patmos, which was John. 
It says the biblical writings were composed on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The contents of the Bible deal with many controversial subjects, yet the Bible is a unit. From beginning to end, there is one unfolding story of God's plan of salvation for mankind. See, the Bible is different. It's different, but what we believe is this, is that the Holy Spirit brought it together through human authors into a love story about God and his people. Here's just another side note. Did you know the Bible is the number one best-selling book of all time? And actually continues to be every year? Like continues to be every year. Now, I'm not saying just because a book is a bestseller, you should read it. There's a lot of books that are bestsellers that I, I would not read. But I'm just saying, shouldn't that just at least intrigue you? that it outsells every other religious text, that it outsells every other book every single year. But I hear this all the time. You know, I don't want to read the Bible because I hear so many contradictions. Or I read about the Old Testament. I hear about all these Old Testament stories and how there's no way there's any evidence that those Old Testament stories happened. Actually, there is. And let me just say this. There is clear archaeological evidence to support the Bible. In fact, there's archaeological institutes that are founded by Christians that started in the 19th century that go till today. Why do they still go till today? Because they're still finding evidence that supports the Bible. And hear me on this. There is zero archaeological evidence that says the book of the Bible is false. There's zero archaeological evidence that says something in the Bible is not true. Now, what I want to do is just point out a couple of our archaeological finds that kind of go along with it. And one of the big ones was this. It was called the Hittites. See, for the longest time, we couldn't find any evidence that the Hittites ever existed. Yet they were mentioned in the Bible over 50 times. And people were saying, hey, if the Hittites didn't exist, the Bible isn't real. But what's interesting is they looked in the Bible, looked in the clues, and they were able to unearth several settlements of Hittites. And not only that, it actually referenced to the Israelites in those times. Here's another one, Joseph's rise. If you know the story of Joseph, he was in prison and he rose to be second in command. Sounds pretty crazy, but there's actual Egyptian writings in a tomb that show the story of a man who was in prison rising up to be viceroy of the Egyptian people. Or how about this one, the Tower of Babel? If you don't know the story, the Tower of Babel is the Bible's explanation of languages. It, it was, they were building this tower trying to get on the same level as God. God said, this isn't gonna happen. And to stop it, what he did is he confused their language, gave them different languages. You're like, how, how can you say that? Well, in Babylonian text, it actually talks about at the same exact time the Tower of Babel happened, there was a confusion in language across the area. Or how about this, the worldwide flood? You know, there's hundreds of cultures that say there was a flood. And some people would say, well, that just means that the Bible's copying other cultures or, or it happened. It happened. And there's a lot of scientific evidence to show that there was a worldwide flood. Or how about Sodom and Gomorrah? If, if you remember the cities that were so evil that God sent down fire from heaven, well, they found Sodom and they found Gomorrah and there's evidence of a fiery and violent destruction. I think one of the biggest things that we look for in archaeological evidence is pointing to whether or not what we're reading right now is what was written. And one of the big ones that shows us that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 in Qumran, I looked that up, Qumran, which is 20 miles east of Jerusalem, there was a shepherd walking around with his flock and he decides to throw a rock into a cave. And when he throws the rock into a cave, he hears this crash and he walks in, he sees all of these 
pottery pieces, but inside of it were papyri. And what they were was from all the Old Testament books. In fact, they came in, they excavated that area and found other caves. They found an excerpt from almost every single Old Testament book. And these excerpts were over 800 years older than what they had. And here's why that's a big deal. The oldest one was from 300 years before Jesus. And here's why I say that a lot of people say, well, the Christians went back and rewrote the Old Testament so the prophecies lined up with Jesus. This shows it was written 300 years before Jesus was even on the scene. Here's why I say that. We have proof that what we are reading is what was originally written. Hear me on that. We have proof that what we are reading is what was originally written. And even more so with the New Testament. See, here's what's incredible about the New Testament. We actually have over 5,500 copies of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot in today's world because we have the ability to mass copy books. But back then, it was all by hand. Back then, it was incredibly expensive. So you only copied things that absolutely mattered. Now, the question I always get is this. Does that mean we have the original copies? No, we don't. Because it was written on papyrus, and papyrus only lasts about 100 years unless it's carefully preserved. But we do have many copies from that second century dating back all the way to about 120 A.D. And I need you to understand this. When they were copying this, they were incredibly meticulous in the way they copied it. They would copy it in the same way that we would copy a password for a Wi-Fi network. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like the ones that have all the letters and numbers that make no sense. You're like, can you just make up something I, I can remember? But what are you doing? You're like J48 three, capital F, like you just go, like you get it exactly right. They were doing it exactly right. Why? Because they believed in what they were writing down. In fact, they would count the letters of each line and every time they did it, they would count those letters. And if it was off, they'd just throw away the page. In fact, if somebody came in while they were copying down, they would throw away the page because they wanted to get it exactly right. And hear me on this. Even though we don't have the originals, we have more copies of the New Testament than any other book from that time period, and it's not even close. It's not even close. In fact, I want to show you just a graph of what it looks like, the New Testament, next to other classical writings. And so this is just the idea of the height. If you were to stack the writings on top of each other, the average classical writer, which is the first one, would be about four feet we only have a couple of those writings, maybe about four feet. Now, 1,792 feet is what the One World Trade Center would be. The next line is the New Testament, which is about a mile. So if you stacked up all the New Testament documents we have, it would go a mile, 5,280 feet in the air. That's a ton of documents. On top of that, we have more of the Old Testament, mostly because the Jewish people kept that together and it's 1.5 miles high. And then the entire Bible, we have two and a half miles high of documents that show us that what we're reading right now is what was written back then. Now, what I hear is this many times, and, and it's true. I hear people say, but there's a lot of variations, and there are. There are thousands of variations in the Bible. Don't leave. There's thousands of variations but 99.8% of them have nothing to do with the text. Don't change the text whatsoever. And here's what I mean by that. Most of the variations are one letter out of place, one extra letter, one missing letter, whatever that may be. In fact, I'll say it this way. People who say that the copies of the New Testament go against each other are actually, it means they haven't looked into it. They haven't actually researched it. And I'm gonna show you the 0.2%. You're like, well, what about the 0.2%? Well, I'm going to show you the biggest verses from that, all right? Get ready to have your faith shaken. 
Mark 9, 29, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He had just cast out a demon and he says this, he says, this kind can be cast out only by prayer. And then in two different manuscripts, it says in fasting. So what does that mean? Next time you go to cast out a demon, I would pray definitely. And just to be sure, I'd fast. Just to be sure. Killer, right? Here's the one I like much more. Revelation 13, 18. This will throw some of you. It says, wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Actually, in two earlier manuscripts, it says 616. What? See, here's why I love this. is all those people that did all those like mathematical equations with Barack Obama's name to say that he was the Antichrist. It's like, oh, actually, it's 616. Who does that make? Donald Trump? I don't know. It's just... I'm just being funny, settle down. But anybody that does that, I love the fact, oh, you may not be right in that. And here's what I want you to understand. We have more evidence today than we did before because of the imaging that we have, the ability for us to blow up images of manuscripts. We actually have more manuscripts today than we did 100 years ago that we can look back and make sure that what was written is what we're reading today. I need you to understand there's no situation where there's one manuscript that says Jesus died on the cross and he was crucified and another manuscript that says Jesus was putting up his Christmas lights and fell off the ladder and died. Like that didn't happen. There's no big differences like that. I just showed you two of the biggest differences in that. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who is a guy that literally researches the Bible and is an atheist, said this. He said, essential beliefs, Christian beliefs, are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. He's saying, hey, with what we have right now, I need you to understand that the differences that are there change nothing about the Christian faith. Here's another really big thing we need to know. The New Testament was written while the people who saw Jesus were still alive. What does that mean? That means that it was written by people that either saw Jesus or met somebody that knew Jesus. This is a big deal. Because if you're talking to your friend one day, you go, hey, guess what? That disciple Thomas, like he didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but then Jesus showed up and he let him put his fingers inside of his hands and in his feet. And you're like, yeah, right. So you go, hey, Thomas, did that actually happen? And he's like, yeah. You're like, oh, I need you to understand. Like the reason we can trust it is because it was written when those people were still alive. And if it went against what actually happened, they would have changed it. And we see several books of the Bible, especially Luke, do the incredible job of narrowing down the situation and the timeline so we know exactly when things happened. For example, Luke 3, 1 to 2 says, It was now the 15th year reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iteria and Trachonitis. Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. At this time, a message from God came to the John, the son of Zechariah, who was living in the wilderness. Those are normally parts where we just kind of read over in our daily reading plan. But here's what Luke is saying right there. He's like, fact check me. Fact check me. Can't Google it back then. He's like, fact check me. Talk to these people. This is when this happened. And this is important to know. And this is important to understand because we need to know that what was written down happened right after Jesus 
died. In fact, we know this, all New Testament manuscripts were written between 35 and 69 AD, except for Revelation, which is somewhere between 82 and 98 AD. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal because what you hear so many times is you don't understand what was in the New Testament and Jesus, it was just legend. Well, here's what they say. They say it takes about 70 to 100 years for something to become legend. And here's what we know. We have books, we have manuscripts from that time that show that we have what actually happened in history before that could happen, before that could happen. In fact, I want to show us just a little bit of a, of a timeline here. And in 30 AD, here's what you see. You see the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the church. And you're wondering, wait a second, wasn't Jesus 33? He was. The people that originally made up the calendar got some dates wrong. So technically, Jesus was born three years before he was born. So... <laughs> But here's what happened. He died on the cross. No one believed. He rose from the dead. Everyone believed. The church started in that moment. And then what happened next was incredible. And the next date on there, 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, is an incredibly important date for when we talk about knowing that the Bible was written before that date. And here's why. Here's why. There's a guy named Vespasian who was who was a military leader at that time. In about 65 AD, he decided he was going to put down all Jewish rebellion. Because at that time, there was many different Jewish factions. They would rebel at different times, cause a lot of casualties. Vespasian goes, I'm going to put them all down. So he funnels all of the Jewish people, he, all the different factions into the city of Jerusalem. At that time, he's actually called to be emperor. He becomes emperor Vespasian, but his son Titus becomes the head of the army. And Titus wants to make a name for himself. So Titus builds a big moat around the city of Jerusalem. He also builds an earthen wall around it to make sure nobody gets out. And every single day for about four years, he crucifies about a hundred Jewish people. Just showing the world what's happening. Then in 70 AD, you see the gates are breached. The temple is destroyed. The Jewish people are dispersed. At this moment, Jewish people were not allowed back in Jerusalem, which was their holy city. And hundreds of thousands of Jewish people went into the slave trade, so much so that you see across continents, the price of slaves go down. Here's why I'm saying that. It was an event that would have rocked anyone, especially the early Christians who were mostly Jewish. And if this event was happening at the time that you wrote these books, you would definitely talk about it. So we know this event is not talked about in any of the books. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. It hadn't happened yet. See, the truly crazy story of this, though, is what happened between 30 AD and 312 AD. See, in those times, it was illegal to be a Christian. It was illegal to be a Christian. In fact, not only would you go to prison, but you would be killed. In fact, when Nero was emperor, he was known for taking Christians, tying them to poles, putting oil on them and lighting them to light his garden parties. They would take Christians and they were the main ones thrown into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions. But during this time when it's illegal to be a Christian, where it's wrong to be a Christian, it literally grew by the thousands upon thousands and exploded so much in a time where you were persecuted for it. That in 312 AD, when, when Constantine takes the Roman Empire back over, he goes, what can I do to bring the Roman Empire together? What is it that everyone has in common? And it was Christianity. So he named Christianity to be the state religion of the Roman Empire. Not because he believed it. In fact, most historians say he was not a Christian, but because he was looking at what everyone was doing. 
understand me in this. How crazy is it that between 30 AD and 312 AD, when you were killed for being a Christian, it rose to levels that we had not seen before. And not because they were dying for something special. You gotta realize in Christianity, we get the gift in the beginning, don't we? Like we believe we get the gift. We don't have to die in order to reach a certain level of heaven. We don't have to die in order to get a special reward, like a certain amount of virgins, whatever it may be. Death is not something that God calls us to do, yet people did it. Why? Because they believed that Jesus is who he says he was and that the Bible was true. Guys, if Christianity was so flimsy, it would have gone away the moment people started dying. It would have gone away the moment they started throwing Christians into the Colosseum. Yet not only did it not go away, but it thrived because people believed in what they saw. Later on that outline, you see Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus and also Ta Biblia. And here's, here's what, that's where the Bible actually fully comes together, Old Testament and New Testament. And I hear people say, well, you know, it's just kind of random how they brought it together. No, here's the two biggest things. One, it had to be a book that was used by the majority of churches. And two, it had to be written by someone who is either alive with Jesus or was close friends with someone who saw him. So this, this had to have been written by somebody with firsthand experience with Jesus. Because we know over 500 people saw Jesus go up into heaven. And we know people believed it because they were willing to die for it. Not for a religion that, that raises you up and makes you better than everybody else, but for a religion that says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. For a man that says forgive others and put others first. See, at some point we've got to ask this question. I think we all do. Is, is the reason I don't believe because the evidence doesn't stack up or is the reason I don't believe because I just don't want to believe it? And I don't want the Bible to be true because I want to run my own life. See, there's some truth in that. There's some truth. If the Bible is true, there's some serious repercussions to that. If the Bible is true, here's what we know. I'm guilty because I've sinned. I'm accountable for my sin and I'm wrong. It's a hard one, right? I'm guilty, I'm accountable and I'm wrong. What three words are harder for the average American to say? But just because something is uncomfortable doesn't mean it's not true. Just because something makes me uneasy, it doesn't mean that it's not true. Romans 3.23 says it this way. It says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Is it truth standing in your way or is it pride? St. Augustine said it this way. He says, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. See, what's great about the Bible is it doesn't just say you're wrong and leave you there. It says you're wrong, but there's a better way. See, if the Bible's true, I'm guilty, I'm accountable, and I'm wrong. But here's the other side. If the Bible's true, there is forgiveness, there is relationship, and there is truth. There's forgiveness from everything we have done and everything we will do. And there's relationship. I hear people say, well, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did it have to be blood? Why did that entire thing have to happen? And I think this is the reason why. And we know this, for relationship to happen, there must be sacrifice. We must know that he loved us that much. James 4, 8 to 10, kind of explains what we're supposed to do with this information. It says, it says, come close to God 
and God will come close to you. That's a promise. It says, wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. We, we get offended by the sinners. Here's what he's saying. He goes, just admit you're wrong. Just admit that you're wrong. He says, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Stop playing games. Stop putting one foot in the world and one foot following after God. He's like, you have to pick a side. In verse nine, he says, this says, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. You're like, wait, what is that about? It's, it's the understanding that what I have done has separated myself from God. And that's a big deal. Because if we don't see that as a big deal, we don't feel we need a savior. If we don't think sin's a big deal, we don't think we need a savior. And what's so incredible about this verse in verse 10, it says, this says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. See, when we finally do it, it's God that lifts us up. So I've got a, the question for some of you in this room, maybe you haven't taken that first step. And I, I want you to understand, not all your questions will ever be answered, but a lot of them can be. And really it's to the point where I'm going, there's overwhelming evidence on one side. But is the reason you don't want to listen to the truth is because you don't think it's true or you're just afraid of what God's going to do in your life. And here's what we saw at the end of that verse. When we humble ourselves, he doesn't keep us there. He lifts us up. So today, if you want to start that relationship with him, if you want to commit your life to him, I'm going to say a prayer out loud that you can say silently right where you sit. So if we could right now, if we could bow our heads and close our eyes, I'm going to say a prayer out loud that you can say silently right where you are at. Dear God, I know that I've sinned. Please forgive me. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe he died. I believe he rose again. Today, I'm committing my life to you. Today, I'm accepting your free gift of love. God, thank you for being there. God, thank you for loving me first. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer today, hear me on this. This is the greatest decision you will ever make, but it's just the beginning of it. And we would love to come alongside you and help you with that decision. Here's what you wanna do. Text YES to 81313. Just text YES to 81313 and we will follow up with you and help you find some next steps for following after God. But I'm not done yet. There's one last point I need to get across and this is this. For Christians, hear me on this. I think so many times as Christians, we're okay just coming to church and not actually getting into the Bible. But if the Bible is true, the Bible is true, we must read it we must read it. We may be afraid of what it may say, but we must read it because we know that's how God talks to us. Hebrews 4.12 explains it perfectly. It says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. See, as Christians, we've got a choice. We can either seek truth or seek comfort. We can either go after God or we can go after what we want. We can either choose to do what God has called us to do and live a more abundant life or choose to turn that side off and live in the darkness of just not knowing. But it's up to us. We get the choice. Am I seeking truth? Am I seeking God? Or am I just seeking the comfort that I've got in my life? And we all have next steps there. Right now, I'm gonna ask the campus pastors to come up and close the service.